Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. And this week, I'm turning the microphone over to Sudip Bose, our managing editor, uh, because he's much more knowledgeable about classical music than I am. Um, so here it goes. Thank you, Stephanie. We're coming to you this week from the home of Chris Denby, the chairman of the board of the Washington, D.C.-based post-classical ensemble. My guest is Joseph Horowitz, who happens to be the executive director of that ensemble. And he's also the author of 10 books, it's one of the foremost authorities on the history of classical music in America. He's written a groundbreaking article that appears in the autumn issue of The American Scholar. It's called New World Prophecy, and it asks a, a thought-provoking question, which is, why have classical music composers in America largely ignored the country's wealth of African-American vernacular music? In other words, why has American classical music remained so uniformly white? Joe, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Sudeb. Joe, the story you tell essentially begins with the arrival of the Czech composer Antonin Dvorak to America in 1892. Dvorak was named the director of the National Conservatory of Music in New York, and one of his charges was to help American composers forge a distinctly nationalistic style. He also wrote some fantastic music while he was here, and I'd like to begin by asking you if you would mind to play some excerpts from two of those pieces on the piano. This is the piece by Dvorak that nobody knows. Most people know that he composed the New World Symphony which does and does not sound American, but everybody hears this piece as American. And if you play this piece, which nobody knows, and ask people to guess the composer, which I've been doing for about 20 years, nine times out of 10, the answer will be Gershwin. And yet this piece was composed in 1894, and Porgy and Bess, which it so resembles, was 1935. And how Dvorak managed to acquire such an American style beyond an American accent is one of the most fascinating and strangest stories in the history of Western classical music. This, in fact, is the opening of the fourth humoresque, which Dvorak composed in 1894. And when people guess Gershwin, I didn't give them a second chance to guess the composer, and I play this. (laughs) 
So what was that? Another unknown piece by Dvorak. This is from the same year, 1894. And the guesses are usually Scott Joplin. And indeed, it's a little bit like stride piano. And Dvorak might have heard Joplin in Chicago. He certainly would have been exposed to ragtime. This is the opening of the third movement of his American Suite. So Dvorak took very seriously Mrs. Thurber when she said to him, can you help us? And he did it partly by just composing his own American music, and here it is. You're quite right. That's probably the least Slavonic-sounding Dvorak I've ever heard. Even parts of the New World Symphony, the American String Quartet, seems to come straight from the plantation, but so much of it does sound to me like Czech music, Bohemian music. It's, it's old-world music. How on earth did Dvorak settle upon these idioms? There really are American pieces of music. Yeah, this is a phenomenon very little known, very little written about. Just imagine what might have happened if he had not gone back to Prague in 1895, which only happened because Mrs. Thurber, her husband, lost his fortune in the Panic of 1893, and she could no longer afford to pay Dvorak. But Dvorak was rapidly evolving a style that began as a kind of American-accented style, but then turned into an American style. He was actually, as of 1894, a year after the New World Symphony, composing music that sounds American. He did it, I would say, through a process of osmosis. He was a man who could not ignore the sounds that he heard around him. He's the antithesis of Mahler, who also came to the New World and stayed as long as Dvorak did, but Mahler would never have composed a New World Symphony. What was in Mahler's head was Viennese, it was Eastern European, and it stayed there. It didn't matter where he was living. Dvorak couldn't help but attend to the sounds around him. And <laughs> the final proof is that when he went back to Prague, he completely dropped his American style. But he's on the cusp of an even more American sound, which we never got to hear. He's already writing music that's infused with the African-American vernacular, with plantation song, with minstrel song, with minstrel dance. And then the other two influences are the American West and Indians. So Dvorak is deeply inspired by Native American and black vernacular music. He could hear Go Down Moses, and it could really change the essence of, of his being, and, and it, it informs so much of his work. I'd like to read uh, an excerpt from the May 21st, 1893 edition of the New York Herald. And this is a very important passage, as you well know, and you talk about it in your, your article. This is Antonin Dvorak, remember, 1893. I am now satisfied that the future music of this country must be founded upon what are called the Negro melodies. This must be the real foundation of any serious and original school of composition to be developed in the United States. These beautiful and varied themes are the product of the soil. They are American. These are the folk songs of America, and your composers must turn to them. All of the great musicians have borrowed from the songs of the common people. In the Negro melodies of America, I discover all that is needed for a great and noble school of music. So this is quite astounding 
I think, to have been pronounced this great exhortation to America's composers, America's fledgling classical music world. And as you mentioned in your article, there were composers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries who did seem to take Dvorak's exhortation to heart. Uh, could you talk a little bit about who these composers were and how they made use of especially black vernacular melodies in their music? So it's easy to see that Dvorak's prophecy didn't come true, or that it sort of did, because American music, as known to the world, is black. But it's not classical music. And when he says great and noble school of music, he's thinking symphonies, sonatas, concertos, operas. I've long been familiar with this prophecy, and I've long given it a lot of thought. But it's only in recent years that it's occurred to me that it almost happened. And what I mean by that is there's a buried history of black classical music. And that music is more interesting than we assume. It begins with Dvorak and Burley, Harry Burley, his assistant, who was black and is the person most responsible for turning these Negro melodies into concert songs. If you ever heard Marian Anderson sing Deep River, that is Burley's Deep River, and you can trace it back to Dvorak, and you can trace it back to the Largo of the New World Symphony, which is an astounding story in itself for another time. Then we come to Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who was then a very famous black British composer. Coleridge Taylor came under the influence of Burley and others like Paul Lawrence Dunbar, W.E.B. Du Bois. All of these people knew Dvorak's prophecy. They saw Coleridge Taylor as the fulfillment or the potential fulfillment of Dvorak's prophecy. But he wasn't, even though he wrote his 24 Negro Melodies and other works based in the black vernacular. I would say he was too Victorian, too much a product of his royal conservatory training to really do justice to these vernacular African-American musical roots. And it's significant to me, I don't think anybody else has ever pointed this out, that the moment Coleridge Taylor dies is the moment that Burley starts. And just after Coleridge Taylor's death, we have Burley's first so-called arrangement, which is Deep River, which is no arrangement. That is a composition. Because Deep River began as an upbeat, obscure spiritual, doesn't sound at all like the Deep River that Burley composed and Marian Anderson sang. But Burley, not being a fully trained composer, did not compose for orchestra. So that's the beginning of the lineage, and it is Nathaniel Dett, Florence Price, William Grant Still, and William Dawson, and Margaret Bond. These are the interwar black composers of classical music who we don't know. And we don't know them for two reasons. The first reason is institutional racism. You know, conductors, orchestral musicians, opera singers, they're not black. The other, which is more interesting because it's less noticeable, is aesthetic. The modernists of that period were not comfortable with the vernacular, and I'm talking particularly about the two guys who most wrote the book about the history of American classical music, and they are Aaron Copland and Virgil Thompson. Copland very explicitly 
was not comfortable with popular music. He said about Gershwin that he wasn't a real composer. Composers manipulate the vernacular. They don't just appropriate the vernacular. He said, in effect, that he could improve on Mr. Gershwin's jazz. And you could add that when Copeland was confronted by cowboy tunes in composing Billy the Kid, he confided that he wasn't too fond of those tunes. So there are two obstacles to this music having become known. And these obstacles begin to matter when you acquaint yourself with the Negro Folk Symphony of William Dawson. The Negro Folk Symphony of William Dawson was premiered by Leopold Stokowski in the Philadelphia Orchestra in 1934. Stokowski took it to Carnegie Hall. It was nationally broadcast. And it turns out that this work was greeted as a major achievement, not least by Stokowski himself, who said this was an important new development in American music. No one at that moment imagined that this work would fall into obscurity. I'm sure it was assumed that Dawson would continue to compose symphonies. He never composed another symphony, nor did he ever become the conductor that he wished to be. Instead, he turned into an important arranger of spirituals, and he was honored in his lifetime, and he lived to a ripe old age as a grand old man of African-American music. He never took his rightful place as an American symphonic composer. Stokowski thought enough of this piece to return to it with the American Symphony and record it. And you can access that recording on YouTube and listen to it and scratch your head and ask yourself, what the hell happened? Why have I never heard this piece before? It's a, an astounding piece of music, and it has everything that you could possibly want in a symphony. It's beautifully constructed. It ha It is utterly moving. It draws beautifully on the tradition of the sorrow songs in America. It has an amazing second movement, which, as you say in your article, is the, the heart of the piece, and in fact uh, caused the audience at the premiere to, to leap to their feet. They gave a standing ovation mid-piece, mid which I should say was in 1934 as uh, much a breach of concert etiquette as it would be today. I mean, imagine you're in the middle of a piece, you're at the end of a slow movement, and, and a crowd gets up and, and demands uh, an acknowledgement from the conductor. We're going to listen to a few excerpts from Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony today, but let's just sample the beginning of the work. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful, haunting, evocative beginning to a symphony. So let's listen to about a minute of it. It's a, it's a work that, uh, I confess, I did not know 
until uh, I got to read your article. And so it's it's been a real eye-opener for me. It's an amazing piece of music. In the context of other pieces by black composers that were composed around that time, you would argue, stands out. I'm talking about William Granstill's Afro-American Symphony, the symphony uh, by Florence Price. Now, do you think this is a better work? Why don't we just observe that we know from the music historian Gwyn Brown, who's writing a biography of William Dawson, that those three pieces, which were premiered around the same time, and the Price Symphony is in E minor, the key of the New World Symphony. They were all prominently premiered. One was in Rochester, conducted by Howard Hansen. One was in Chicago, conducted by Frederick Stock. One was in Philadelphia and New York, conducted by Leopold Stokowski. She documents the reception of these three symphonies. The big reception was the Dawson Symphony. That was the one that most excited people. And it's certainly the one that most excites me. I do want to get back to Copeland a little bit and Thompson as well. And to some extent, Leonard Bernstein, whose judgments shaped a lot of uh, how we perceive American music. My question is, do you think they knew Dawson and his symphony at all? We could reasonably say with utter certainty that Gershwin was, was aware of the Negro Folk Symphony by William Dawson. How could Thompson and Copeland have not been? It, it created such a noise. They never talked about it. Certainly it was never performed by Mr. Bernstein. But the nub here is that these first accounts of the history of American classical music, not written by music historians, because we didn't have any, but by composers acting as part-time music historians, they all say something wrong. They all say, and I'm including Bernstein as well as Copeland and Thompson, that there was no American music of consequence before 1910. So let's just stop right there. There was a guy named Charles Ives. He may be our greatest composer. He's composed plenty of great music by 1910. I would also say that Dvorak, as much as Scarlatti in Spain, became an American composer, and we have some wonderful American music by Dvorak that predates 1910. And there's a lot of other stuff. So once you absorb this notion that there's nothing to look at, think about, or listen to before 1910, you're also scrubbing out those plantation songs. You're also losing the opportunity to go back to the black musical mother load and utilize it. You know, it's it's interesting because Copeland uh, is synonymous in so many ways with America, and whether that's an authentic vision of America or not. But I'm thinking back to the old commercials for American beef with Rodeo playing the, as a jingle in the background. It's like nothing can get more American than this hunk of beef and Aaron Copeland, right? But... Clearly, this is only one conception of America and this uh, incredible store of music that was inspired by black vernacular melodies, um, American Indian music. This somehow, over the years, got lost. And uh, But you think now that tide is perhaps turning? It's long been my opinion that the two great American compositional talents were Charles Ives and George Gershwin. It almost seems self-evident to me, but for a long time you would never have known it. 
And indeed, both of them were perceived by Thompson, by Copeland, even by Bernstein, as gifted amateurs. They are not. If you listened to Ives' setting of Feldeinsamkeit, which he did as a student at Yale, it is in fact, I kid you not, a great German lead. It's as good as Brahms. And when I say Brahms, this is one of the peak achievements in German art song. Ives is there. He's no amateur. Gershwin, it's unbelievable the things that have been written about Gershwin, casting aspersion on his compositional gift. Sure, he was self-taught. Sure, there are flaws in Porgy and Bess. Show me another first opera by a major European composer as accomplished as Gershwin's first opera. The genius of George Gershwin, I think it, it's sort of interesting that it's always been recognized by European composers. Uh, Shostakovich, Francis Poulenc, Maurice Ravel, I could go on and on. These people recognized Gershwin not only as a genius, but as a composer of serious music. And You would argue that Porgy and Bess might be the apotheosis of American concert music. So there you have Dvorak's prophecy, Sudip. That is what Dvorak prophesied, an opera like Porgy and Bess. Porgy and Bess remains permanently controversial, but for what it's worth, in my opinion, which is not unique to myself, the highest creative achievement in American classical music happens to be a fulfillment of Dvorak's prophecy. I'd like to get back to the Dawson Negro Folk Symphony and, and listen to a little bit of it. And uh, in particular, I would like to go to the second movement, which was the movement that electrified that crowd in Philadelphia and Carnegie Hall when Leopold Stokowski gave the premiere. Um, Joe, tell us a little bit about this movement, which is called Hope in the Night. If you don't mind, Sudip, I'll just read what, what's in this article I wrote for you. The heart of the work is its central slow movement, Hope in the Night. Dawson begins with a tune for English horn, a gesture toward Dvorak and the New World Symphony. He called this English horn solo a melody that describes the characteristics, hopes, and longings of a folk held in darkness. In other words, it's a journey, and it sounds like a journey, and it leads to a big climax that's punctuated by gong and chimes. And then comes the coda, and this is the passage that was most remarked upon. This is the passage that drove the audience to its feet. Dawson says that the three gong strokes that begin the movement represent the Trinity who guides forever the destiny of man. And what he does at the end of the movement is he returns to these gong strokes amplified, I write, by a seismic throb of chimes and timpani. The result is a heaving, pulsating, threefold groundswell. This is such an original inspiration. We never heard anything like this before. Let's do this, Joe. Let's listen to the, the coda, and then we'll go back to the climax of the second movement.
That is the ending of the second movement of the William Lee Dawson Negro Folk Symphony as magnificently recorded by Leopold Stokowski in 1963. And how is it possible we don't know this music? So, Joe, have there been any recent performances of this amazing symphony? Anything coming up that we should know about? I am on the warpath for this symphony. I'm now teaching part-time at SUNY Purchase, which has a distinguished conservatory of music. And I can tell you that when I suggested this work to Minna Kim, the conductor, and Jenny Underkoffler, who runs that conservatory, A, it was unfamiliar to them, and B, as soon as they heard it, they played it. So Minna conducted the first movement last spring. As I mentioned in my article, a prevalent response among the student musicians was shame. If the United States doesn't know it, then American orchestras and audiences don't know it. Angel Gilardonez, who's the conductor of post-classical ensemble, I'm the executive director in DC, he conducts the orchestra at Georgetown University. They're doing the second movement April 25 at GU, and I believe it's highly likely that at the Brevard Music Festival, which I take part in every summer, there will be a performance of the complete symphony this coming summer. It sounds as if Dawson's moment, like Gershwin's and like others, might finally be here. I think that's exciting and, and uh, very, very encouraging and long overdue. Sudev, I'm grateful and excited that you've taken such an interest in Dvorak's prophecy and in the William Dawson Negro Folk Symphony. Thanks, Joe. It's been a real education. I think we should close by listening to uh, a longer excerpt from the second movement of the Negro Folk Symphony. Uh, We'll listen from about the climax to the end, to that very, very powerful end. So let's listen to the end of that movement now.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.